0: Let's turn to Romans chapter 4, and I want to read the whole chapter. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles at the back, and it may be helpful to you as we go through this, just to be able to look at it. Uh, Romans chapter 4 on page 1131. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith, that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Um, We'll stop there. We'll go on to do the rest of the chapter as we go on. But uh, this whole chapter is Paul's exposition of one text, I think. Uh, Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we saw this morning, it was simple. Abraham believed God and Abraham was blessed. Now, as we, we look at this, just a little bit more uh, about Abraham. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going somewhere and somebody really quite famous says that they're your friend. Annabelle and I were at a conference and um, the speaker gave a wee, me a wee bit of a shock when he said, My friend David Robertson. And I, honestly, I'm being honest, I have to admit and say, Oh, I felt that. Huh, I'm his friend. That's quite good, really. Um, imagine. If you said, you know, I want you to come around and meet one of my friends. And it turns out it was, you know, like the queen or or, or something like that. It's, you know, someone quite famous Say, here's my, my friend. Or they, they call you their friend. Imagine the queen giving her Christmas message and saying, I just want to thank all my family and the wonderful people of the United Kingdom and especially my friend. Emma Jane Robertson, <laughs> that, or something like that, you know, just to pick on someone at random. Um, it's a tradition. You know, but this is what happens with Abraham. Isaiah 41, verse 8: But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Uh, I think, you know, we talk about what a friend we have in Jesus. And I think this notion of God calling Abraham his friend, Jesus calling his disciples his friend, I think that's wonderful. Well, verses 9 to 12 that we've looked at reinforces the point that religion as such cannot save us and that rituals as such cannot save us. Abraham was pronounced righteous, it was credited to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. It was a rabbinic tradition that it was 29 years between these two events, between Abraham believing God's promise and then being circumcised. So Abraham believed and then was circumcised. If you're a Baptist, you'll see where we're going with this in a wee while. Um, circumcision was not the basis for Abraham's righteousness. It was a sign and seal of it. And therefore, Abraham was qualified to be the father of all who believe. He was both circumcised and justified by faith. Now, let's just say something about baptism here because baptism does not save us. I have met people who, who believe that. They believe that they were baptized and therefore they are saved. But it's like circumcision. In fact, we believe it's the New Testament equivalent of circumcision. It's a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. Charles Hodge says this, that which answers well as a sign is a miserable substitute for this thing signified. It's a sign which tells us of the newness of life, and the death, and the forgiveness of sins. That's what circumcision did, and that's what baptism did. And incidentally, that is why some of us, not everyone here, and Christians will argue about it, but that's why in this church we do baptize the children of believers, because Abraham believed and was circumcised, and then his children were circumcised before they believed. So the order of the sacrament, if you like. You don't have to have the thing signified before you have the sign. It was part of God's covenant. Now all of this is important because all three, as we saw this morning, all three great monotheistic faiths in the world, covering the majority of the world's population, will say, Judaism, Islam and Christianity, will say that Abraham is their father. But here Paul uses it in the sense not of of the flesh so much as he's the example of being the father in faith. And I do think that that is something that is very important. Let's read on. It was verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. We're not made righteous by works the good things that we do we're not made righteous by circumcision or baptism so what about the law very very important to the jewish people particularly the jewish leadership and what paul does and he's going to do this later on in romans even in even more detail is he cites the weakness of the law to do what it was supposed to do and he contrasts that with the grace verse 16 and the universal fatherhood of God, verse 17. He's the father of us all. Now, there are those Christians who might want to argue, do you know, if only we could get the Ten Commandments back into schools, then our country would be a much better place, and maybe it would be. But the law won't save people. And we need people to be real Christians, not just to have the law. Very often the church does depend too much on the law. But Paul's point about the law, and again he will go into this in more detail later on, is that the law brings wrath, not salvation. And that's a hard thing to grasp. Verse 15, law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression of the law. He's not saying, by the way, there's no sin. That's quite important. He's saying this particular type of sin where the law is being broken. You can't break a law that you don't know. You're not transgressing something that you don't know. And what Paul is doing here is really quite radical to the Jews. He's saying, you think that because you have God's law, you are better than the Gentiles. Actually, by having God's law, you've been made worse. You you have to answer more. I think there is an application to that in our context and in our culture. It is a tremendous privilege to be brought up in the Christian church. Our children have a tremendous privilege. But it is true that with that privilege also comes a responsibility. Because we know so much more. Let me give you just one very um, trite example. Small example. Uh, I was preaching once up in Inverness in Smithton and as we came out uh, a man shook my hand and he said that was a beep 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 sermon and he was saying it was a great sermon and he used a few swear words. Now I I was a bit shocked I'd never come across this in a free church before or any church actually Um, and I'd come from the Baptist and I thought wow these people are and I remember um, David Meredith the minister smiling and saying to me afterwards he's just being converted and he's from Glasgow (laughs) which I thought wasn't very fair but basically the guy didn't know that's what he 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 knew that he wasn't to use Jesus's name so he he just used other swear words but he was complimenting me on the sermon and that's I mean he just didn't know now on the other hand if one of my kids had done that well maybe not but (laughs) then you know because they know you don't swear you don't do that. You don't use bad language. Well, that's, the kind of, that's a, a kind of trivial illustration of what's being told, that, that they knew and yet they still continue to do the things that were wrong. That's what he said earlier in chapter 2. The language of this, you know, it, it, it is important for us to grasp. When we break the law, our guilt is greater than it would have been without the law to condemn us. Where there is no law, there's no transgression of the law. The language of law and the language of promise are two very different things. The language of law says, you shall and demands our obedience. The language of promise says, I will and demands our faith. God did not say to Abraham, obey this law and I will bless you. But he said, I will bless you. Believe my promise. And if you like, the law stems from that. Now, none of this is to denigrate God's law. Again, Paul will say that the law is holy and good and perfect and righteous. But it's what it's intended for. It's the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to point us to Christ. It cannot save us. There's another way, very simple phrase that I found very helpful uh, as a Christian. And that is, grace gives and faith takes. Just a It's it's a very simple way of understanding it. And then verses 17 and 18 is the kind of theological argument. He's the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we believe, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are. He's saying that only the gospel of grace and faith can unite people. The law divides, especially in its ceremonial aspect. And I think one of the things that you might miss when you just read through this passage is this blessing. Look at verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. But we just sang the promise that Abraham got. And the promise that he got was he would be given Canaan as the land. And yet here, heir of the world. So has Paul misunderstood Well, we know that that's not the case because we know that Abraham was also promised that all nations would be blessed through him. It's dangerous water to tread on, but I want to suggest that those Christians who focus on Israel going back to the land of Israel are making a mistake because the the blessing is for the whole world. Now, I believe that the Jewish people still have A very significant purpose. And again, as we go again through Romans, you will see what that is. But this this focus on the land of Israel is, I think, not grasping what Paul says here and what he says later on, which is that, yes, Canaan was your land, but actually the world is being promised. And here's the most amazing thing. When this letter was written, it's possible that there may have been maybe a maximum of 10,000 Christians in the world, and they were being persecuted, and it must have seemed ridiculous, this idea, heir of the whole world, what does that mean? And yet, today, there isn't a country in the world without Christian believers, I mean, the the extraordinary thing, I think in Africa in 1900, it was reckoned there were between 10 and 20 million African Christians. Today, it's 400 million. I mean, it's it's extraordinary how the gospel continues continues to grow and continues to prosper. Sometimes we don't see that. But that's what is being said. Abraham was, the, the promise to Abraham has actually, in fact, already been fulfilled. In the world's history, there are more Christians than we would be able to number. And I think one of the things that Paul is saying here as well, by the way, is that if the blessing for the world was to be limited to a particular institution, the Mosaic law, particularly the ceremonial law, peculiar to Israel, then it would have been so much harder but what happens in the new testament is that that ceremonial law is gone the temple is gone and it's not going to be restored and instead the gospel of jesus christ which came through the jews is now out going out to all the world so abraham's faith shows that it comes by faith not by the law or religious ritual then read verse Uh, On from verse 18 to verse 21. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he Had promised. It shows us what real faith is. Real faith is belief in hope. And let me just give you one or two characteristics from here, what real faith is. Um, I had a conversation earlier about how do I know if I've got faith? What is real faith? Well, let me give you this quote um, from Calvin. Let us also remember. He's commenting on this passage that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. In other words, God gives us these promises but what we see seems opposed to that. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us outward judgments threaten his wrath what then is to be done we must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that god is true and that's that's not the blind faith but that's a faith which says what i see makes things really difficult and hard but I believe what God has said, and so I see them through a different lens. He did not waver through unbelief. Actually, for those of you who know your Bible, there's a problem there, isn't there? It's Genesis 17, 17. Abraham fell face down, and he laughed, and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a a child at the age of 90? Is this not the Bible contradicting itself? Is, is, Is this not... You know, Paul's holding him up as an example of faith, facing the fact that his body was as good as dead, and there's Abraham laughing, saying, oh, yeah, right. Well, what's happening here, I think, is fairly straightforward. Abraham's not being held up as an example of perfect faith, as someone who never had any doubts, as someone who said, well, God says it, that's fine, I just accept it. I think Abraham struggled with this, as you would, too, if you think about it. You your wife's womb is dead. You're 99 years old and um, you're promised that you're going to have all these descendants. It's no wonder that you laugh. It's no wonder that you question. But I think what this is saying is that his heart attitude overall was one of faith. He, he reasoned it through. He had Hope in the promise of God. Faith gives glory to God. Faith glorifies God. It's kind of like Paul is saying, let God be God. Trust the resurrection. Jesus says, have faith in God. You trust in the faithfulness of God. And this is where so many of us, I think, get it wrong, particularly again in our culture where they think that faith is blind faith and it's just wishful thinking because it is reasonable. Look at verse 21. I find this um, fascinating. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He he had his doubts and fears, yes. But was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Why? Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. He was persuaded. Faith is not an excuse for irrationality. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell said that faith is a conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. That's not true. Faith can very much be shaken by contrary evidence. But faith goes beyond reason. It includes reason, but it goes beyond it. It always has a rational basis. We need to be sure both of God's power and his faithfulness. So, if Abraham had just looked at his wife and at himself, he would have said this can't happen. But because he believed that God was powerful, all-powerful, because he believed in Jehovah, in Yahweh, Because he had some grasp and understanding of that, he said, well, though my body is as good as dead, and I face that fact, I've got to face the facts. He didn't ignore the facts. He didn't shut away the facts. Though my body is as good as dead, yet I believe that God can do this. And he's promised to do it, so I trust him. Again, Calvin. Faith, then, is not a naked knowledge either of God or his truth, nor is it a simple persuasion that God is That his word is the truth, but it is a sure knowledge of God's mercy, which is received from the gospel and brings peace of conscience with regard to God and rest to the mind. So it's not just that you know the Bible, it's not just that you're intellectually persuaded of the truth of the gospel, but it's that you know, you know that God is good, that God is true, that God is faithful, and you place absolutely everything upon that, my heavenly Father knows. And that's why I think it's so important for us to have what I would call a Christocentric faith in that sometimes it's very difficult for us to understand and to grasp who God is or what he is like. And then we look at Jesus and we say, this is what Jesus is like. And Jesus would not lie. And Jesus promised this. And um, we have Abraham, where Moses we're told, regarded not disgrace for the sake of Christ as something to hold him back but he was prepared to commit himself because he knew who he had believed he was persuaded that he is able to keep that which he had committed so abraham's faith shows us what real faith is it is it is belief perhaps with doubts and fears but it is belief in god And faith to let God be God. And it is more than just an intellectual knowledge. It is a heart acquiescence in. It's a commitment. There are so, you know so many illustrations of these. To me, the one that is most relevant to me is a tower that we went up in Toronto one time. And between two towers, you're like hundreds of feet up there's a glass walkway, see-through walkway. And what you see is death, basically. Because you see the floor. And if you're, whoa, you ain't going to do this. Um, but you believe there's a walkway. They tell you there's a walkway. I don't know if it's still there. You have faith with that. But it's not until you actually step out on it. If you've seen any of the, you know, you know the Indiana Jones film where he does the same thing. Uh, steps out onto it. It's not quite as dramatic as that. But um, it is that. You're saying, okay. I've got faith that there's something there. The, The Toronto City Council wouldn't want to be sued by the death of all these tourists stepping out and falling several hundred feet and that it's going to hold up people and that it's done so before. Well, in that sense, faith is saying there are all these people who've testified to the faithfulness and goodness of God. I read about it in God's word and I've experienced it in my own life. And please don't, Diss your own experience. There are times in my life when I've had to look back and say, you know, God provided and God blessed in that situation. If he did it in the past, he'll do it again. Every time you experience a blessing from God, store it up and keep it because there'll be a time when you need it, when the devil comes to you and says, God doesn't care. And you can say, well, hang on, wait a minute. What about that time when? And uh, I think, of course, we look at Christ and what he has done. But that's what real faith is. It's reasonable faith. It's faith that's persuaded that God has the power to do it. Then just the last thing, the last few verses from verse 22. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Let me just go back a little bit where we talk about the God who gives life to the dead and Abraham believing that his wife's womb was dead and that he himself was as good as dead or Abraham being prepared to offer his one and only son, the child of the covenant, the child of the promise because he reckoned that God could raise him from the dead. It's a very, if you wanted to ask me what a a Christian was, I would say a Christian is somebody who believes in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Paul will later go on to say that in Romans as well. As 21st century human beings, I've um, been reading a couple of books recently that are really heavy going and looking at the human condition and getting some of it right, basically getting... Hebrews, right, in saying that human beings are held in slavery by their fear of death. And I've been reading the follow up to that, where the guy, it's so depressing because he's saying, well, we can find our way through psychology and we can find our way through Freud and Jung and and others and we can grasp and we can live. Uh, And it's just so depressing because he identifies the problem, but he hasn't got the solution. He recognizes that we as human beings struggle with the idea of nothingness and of death. They're the two things we most struggle with, aren't they? The great question, if you want, sorry, a little bit of philosophy, because it's a Sunday evening and you're all wide awake. Um, the toughest question in the world is not how did things start or where did we come from? The hardest question in the world for the philosopher is always, why is there something rather than nothing? And to answer that question is really difficult. But I tell you what's even more difficult is trying to cope with the idea of nothingness, to believe that everything came from nothing, or that we go to nothing, or there's just this emptiness, this blankness, this nothingness. And tied in with that is the horror and the hellishness of death. Because I, I don't accept that death is something that's natural, that we just say, well, that's the way it is, and that's how the world works. There's just something wrong. It's an enemy. And that's our constant battle, fighting our fear of death and fighting our awareness, the burden of eternity, as as Ecclesiastes 3, and nothingness. And here what Paul does is he faces this absolutely head-on. He says he is the God who gives life to the dead, and he's the God who called into being things that are not. From nothing. God created ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created. You see, if you're someone like Stephen Hawking, you're trying to convince people that out of nothing, nothing created. The universe created itself out of nothing. And you say, I can't understand that. He's got a great mind. No. He's just got a stubborn mind that refuses to acknowledge God because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But yes, matter is not eternal and it was created, but it was God who created it out of nothing. He is the one, says Paul, who calls into being the things that are not. Nothingness and death are no problem to God. And that's why when I I was Reading this book in the other night in the bath and I was just getting so depressed by it and I didn't have the eureka moment where my foot got stuck in the tap or whatever. I just I thought, oh, I just want to despair and give up. And then I read this and I thought, I don't need to bother because I don't have the answer to nothingness and death, but God does. And how do I know that? Because of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus defeated. He created the universe out of nothing and out of death, he raised Jesus. And that's why when Paul here returns again to Genesis 15, verse 6, like any good preacher repeating himself, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says, this was written not for Abraham alone. It was written for him, but it's written for us that we might learn. He is not just the God of Abraham. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. It's possible that verse 25 says, was an early Christian confession. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. There's a huge amount of argument about why it's said in that way. And um, I would love to go in it, but it's five to seven and we're not gonna do that uh, just now. Except just simply to say this. Jesus was handed over to death for our sins because it was necessary to provide atonement. And Jesus was raised from the dead Demonstrate that it was accepted, but also because his newness of life becomes our newness of life. It becomes guaranteed. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus are are, our only hope. And that's basically it. You can read all the philosophies of this world. You can go into all the, the depth and the questions and wrestle with things. But at the end of the day, the simplest person who sees the solution to death and nothingness as being Jesus Christ is a very rich and wise person. I think we have an absolutely marvelous gospel. And I, I will confess this. Maybe some of you, it's not like this. I don't often think about Abraham. Strange, I think about David a lot more, maybe because we sing his psalms. I think about the apostles, John and so on. It's a long, long time since I've thought about Abraham. And I've really enjoyed just this past couple of weeks, just thinking about him and waking up and saying, well, what a great example of faith. It wasn't just for the Jews that he was an example of faith. He's an example for us. He reckoned that God could raise from the dead. And so he reckoned that he could trust a God who was like that. And that, I hope, is where you and I are as we've entered into this new year. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you that as Paul sent it to the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome in the first century, so just as the word to Abraham was written not just for him but also for them and for us, so this word is also for us. And we thank you for the faith of Abraham and that he is the father of us all, in that we too, if we believe and trust in you, have that same faith, the faith that enables us to look at impossible situations and to say, yes, but God. Lord, we pray that each of us would have the confidence to cast all our cares and burdens upon you because you care for us and because you are God. And Lord, for those faced with particular heaviness, difficulties, situations, trials, tiredness, or whatever, in fears, insecurities, in this coming week, help us to look beyond our own circumstances and to see the God who brings into being out of nothing and the God who raises from the dead. If you can do that, you can deal with our relatively trivial situations. So, Lord, we place ourselves entirely into your hands. We believe you. Grant that you would credit. We know you will credit to us as righteousness because we cannot believe and trust ourselves, but we can believe and trust in you. In your name. Amen.